welcome back to another episode of the Adam Schefter podcast presented by DraftKings, America's top-rated sportsbook app. On this week's podcast, we'll be joined by Amy Trask, the former CEO of the Las Vegas Raiders, who's now an analyst for CBS Sports and the CBS Sports Network. She'll join us to talk about baseball hiring its first women general manager, Kim Ang, and when we might see the same from an NFL team. And then we'll be joined by the interim, maybe even permanent head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, Raheem Morris, who has gotten the Falcons to play good football once again. And then we'll have ESPN analytics guru, Evan Kaplan. But before we go ahead to week 11, first we'll look back at some of the amazing events of week 10. And we start with the catch that DeAndre Hopkins made in the end zone around three Buffalo Bills defensive backs. And here's an element to that play that I have not heard brought up anywhere else. And it goes to show you how COVID has impacted the season in ways that we might not even imagine nor think about. He goes up with three Bills cornerbacks. Now, it's not pointed out that Josh Norman, the Buffalo Bills six-foot cornerback, and Levi Wallace, the Bills six-foot cornerback, did not make the trip because they were on the reserve COVID-19 list. Now, DeAndre Hopkins is so spectacular and so talented that it's very possible he would have made that catch anyway. But I also think that maybe if Buffalo had cornerbacks in the game that were taller and used to playing, maybe it would have been a little different. Maybe they would have knocked down that pass. Maybe that Hail Mary wouldn't have happened. I don't know. We don't know. I asked that last night. I asked that Monday night to Randy Moss, is it possible? that Buffalo missing cornerbacks on that play could have impacted that play. He thought it could have. I think it could have. Again, DeAndre Hopkins is so spectacular that he might have made the catch anyway. I understand and recognize that. But the Bills were missing two cornerbacks, two six-foot cornerbacks who would have been on the field on that play. And I just wonder if that would have impacted what has been maybe the most memorable play of the NFL season. The other memorable play of the weekend, of course, came when Drew Brees was thrown down to the ground. And the moment I saw Contavious Street, the 49ers defensive lineman, throw him down on a legal hit, by the way, that was penalized, a perfectly legal hit, you could tell how much he was hurting. For Drew Brees not to come into the game in the second half, that's a sign. And the people who heard him speak post-game Knew that he didn't sound the same. And then ESPN's Ed Werder, of course, reported on Monday that Drew Brees had three fractured ribs on the left side that came from the Tampa Bay game and two fractured ribs on the right side that came from the 49ers game. And the doctors think that two fractured ribs on the right side very well may have punctured his lung on the hit that he absorbed from Contavious Street. And so now the question becomes, what about Drew Brees in the future? The Saints are on to this week, different quarterback, different matchup, no Drew Brees. And I think there's been this widespread expectation that this would be Drew Brees' last year. He's got a contract signed already with NBC. The broadcasting world was waiting. And now I just wonder if something 
like this would impact and influence his decision. Would that be the last play that he'd want to play if he doesn't come back and play again this season? What if it left him in enough pain with the memory of it so fresh that he says, you know what? I'm 41 years old. I played 20 seasons. I don't need this anymore. I just wonder how a play like that influences his future, which I think was headed in a direction that this was going to be his last year. We'll see if and when Drew Brees can get back again this season. I think everybody would love to see him back sooner rather than later. But I've also had doctors who have not examined Drew Brees, but other doctors reach out to me to say it may be a little while here before we see Drew Brees, if we see Drew Brees again. And so I think there's a widespread sense that he's going to be missing multiple weeks. All right, now onto this week's podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do, big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Adam. It is a great honor to have on Amy Trask, an analyst for CBS Sports and the CBS Sports Network, and is on that other pregame show. I know you in a much different way. Like, I know you as the longtime executive, the former CEO of the Oakland Raiders, the Princess of Darkness, as Raiders fans refer to you as, Amy. That's how I know you. But it's great to have you finally on this podcast. Adam, I could not be any more sincere when I say the following. I am so honored to be joining you. I feel like the kid who was invited to eat at the lunch table with the cool kids in junior high. And that never happened to me in junior high. So thank you very much for this. It is a fabulous yet belated feeling. Well, why would you feel that way about joining my podcast? Like, that's hard for me to imagine. And what do you think your former boss, your friend, your trusted colleague, what what would he say about you being on my podcast today? And I'm referring to the great Al Davis. Well, the reason I shared with you that I feel that I'm eating at the the table with the cool kids is because you're a cool kid. So um, how would he feel? Look, there were umpteen things I did throughout my career that he uh, would just, I, I can't even describe the look he would have on his face. Uh, I will analogize it to the look he gave me when yeah. he saw me chatting on the sidelines before games with Mike Pereira. And he would look at me <laughs> having a nice, friendly chat with Mike and then occasionally refer to him as your friend, that blanking Mike Pereira. So yeah. I did yeah. unseen things with which he wouldn't have agreed. Um, but you know what? At the end of the day, he let me be me. You know what? L- listen, I loved him. Like, I, re- I-, I know, like, there were... 
some things. Broncos, Raiders. I covered the Broncos. Al was not liked in Denver. It was like the arch nemesis, Darth Vader-like figure. But the limited relationship I had with him, it was not like great Will McDonough, but there were times I had great conversations with him. Great. Like, we were at an owner's meeting, and one time he took me to his hotel room and opened it up and showed me all the weights in his room. And I remember another time being at an, another owner's meetings and him talking about having the number one overall pick that year. And I got done with the conversation. I said, oh, he's absolutely 100% taking Jamarcus Russell. And that was in March, a good month or so before the draft. Wow. And I, I always had very pleasant interactions with him until he – upon me the nickname the false rumor monger when I reported about Arch. Like I liked him. I liked him. Well and and I will tell you two things and I you know I referenced Mike Pereira and you know he'd give me he'd he'd, he'd give me crap about my relationship with Mike and he would tease me about my interactions with you because you and I of course continued to uh, interact uh, even once he had that monger moment and I'll come back to that in a moment. But he did have tremendous respect for Mike, and he did have tremendous respect for you. And the fact of the matter is, Adam, it was my experience with Al that if he did not have respect for someone, if they did something that annoyed him, he just let it go because he didn't care. In other words, if someone for whom he had no respect, if someone he didn't think was, you know, intelligent and smart and just very, very good at their job did something, he didn't even concern himself with it. So really, the um, anger and antipathy had, he had at that moment was a sign of his respect for your acumen and your abilities. But I will tell you, and I shared this story in a book I wrote, I was not aware that that statement was being put out. He worked on that with someone else in the organization, and I know darn well why he didn't bring it to my attention before he put it out. But I read the statement when it was out and I went rushing into his office and he was sitting there with the gentleman with whom he worked on the statement. And I had it in my hand and my hand was shaking. And all I could think of to say, I blurted out, mongrel isn't even a word. (laughs) You know, not only did you put this statement out, you used a word that's not even a word. Um, so that was that little moment. Well, you know, the great story of that is that to this day, there are people within the Raiders organization who still call me the mongerer. And for those who <laughs> don't know, I should I should fill in. I don't even know if you know this. I've told this story, I believe, on the podcast. So anybody who's heard it, I apologize in advance. You could fast forward right now. But what happened was I was turning 40. I was getting engaged. The NFL Network, I was doing sidelines for NFL Network when Brian Gumble and Chris Collinsworth, was, was it Brian Gumble and Chris Collinsworth? Brian Gumble and I think that's right. Brian Gumble and Chris Collinsworth were doing the games. I was their sideline reporter. We were in Green Bay for a Thursday night game, and I could go into my journal and get the exact details. Packers, Vikings, I believe, and there was a Saturday night game in Oakland between the Raiders and Chiefs, both of whom we're not having a strong season. And my former boss at NFL Network, Eric Weinberger, told me, you know what? You're turning 40. There's no need for you to go from Green Bay to Oakland on a Saturday night at the end of the season. Why don't you just go home, take the night off, my gift to you for your 40th birthday. And I said, great. And so we were in Green Bay. Two weeks before the end of the season, I reported that the Raiders were planning to fire Art Shell at the end of the season not expecting the reaction it got 
for Mr. Davis, which was to release a statement calling me a false rumor mongerer. And then once that happened, Eric Weinberger got me on the phone. He said, we need to get to go to Oakland. So by reporting that story, I sunk myself at my 40th birthday and had to go across the country to go to that Saturday night game between the Raiders and Chiefs. And it was unbelievable because the guys who were with Deion Sanders, they were making fun that I needed security to get into the stadium, that Mr. Davis was going to come after me. They made me go to Oakland. It was almost like I had to be there to be accountable for the story after reporting it when, in fact, like I said, it cost me my 40th birthday celebration. So that's my little backstory. Were you aware of that one, Amy? I was not aware of that one. And had I known of all of that, I might have brought you a cupcake. So at least you would have gotten a cupcake on your birthday. But again, Adam, the whole time you're telling that, I'm remembering that moment where I'm rushing into Al's office, literally, not figuratively, literally shaking that paper. I was so angry. Monger is not even a word. That's all I could think of to say. Like, if you're going to send something like that out, at least use a real word, right? Yeah, well, it, it was it was something I've always remembered. It's a story that's fun to tell years later. It was not so fun to experience it at the time, but we all get through it, and we're better for it. So I want to ask you this. Last week in baseball, the Miami Marlins named Kim Ang as their new general manager. She becomes the first female and the first Asian American general manager in baseball history. And so my mind right away went, that is so fascinating. That is so interesting. That is so inspiring. I want to know what Amy Trask, the former CEO of the Oakland Raiders, a woman who spent her life around law and football and sports, who has authored the book, that she has, you negotiate like a girl on your experience as an executive. And then I want to know when you think we're going to get a female general manager in the NFL. Wow, that's a tremendous question. Um, almost like you're a journalist or something. Um, <laughs> and I mean that as a, as a compliment, obviously. Uh, it's, a tre- it's a tremendous question. Uh, and the answer is, I don't know. But I do see things happening around the league that show that that path is opening up. We see people around the league hiring women in positions which could allow them to grow into that sort of role. And that, of course, is um, you know, important for anyone who wants to ultimately achieve a certain job is to have the pathway and the opportunity to, to get there. And when it happens, it will be tremendously exciting, of course. But what will be even more exciting is when these are no longer stories. In other words, I'm thrilled for Kim, and I wish her all the very, very best. Um, You know, that's stating the obvious, I hope. But what I really hope is that at some point, when someone is hired, it will no longer be a story, notwithstanding their race, gender, ethnicity, or any other individuality, which has no bearing whatsoever on whether one can do a job. That shouldn't be a story. It still is, and it's great when it happens, but what's going to really excite me is when it's no longer newsworthy. You know, it's like the black quarterbacks, right? We used to talk about there being black quarterbacks, and you don't even talk about it anymore. It's accepted, right? They, they, they shine. They're worthy. They're deserving. It's no longer a story. Remember when that was a story back in the day? I do. That was uh, 
I'll date myself. I do remember when those were stories. And 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 I believe your former boss, he was literally leading the charge for that, correct? It, he did. And you know, Adam, you and I have shared that story about the manga and and we've gone, you know, we've shared other stories over the years. Um, but I do think it's important to note uh, exactly what you just shared, which is notwithstanding what one may think of Al. And I know that you have listeners and you have fans, some of whom love the Raiders, some of whom hate the Raiders, some of whom loved Al, some of whom hated him. He did just that. He hired without regard to race, gender, ethnicity, or any of those individualities, which I noted have no bearing on whether one can do a job. He provided me with the opportunity of a lifetime back in the early part of the 80s. And that was a long, long, long time ago. And yet he did it without a thought. See, and we're starting to see, Amy, more and more women coaches. And it used to be right away when there was a woman coach. That was a big deal. And now it's almost like accepted because there are more and more of them. And so it will be great when there are more and more women executives and it doesn't become a story the way that Kim Ang became that story. Exactly, Adam. I agree with your point entirely. But it, again, like I said to my daughter the other day, she's 12 years old. I said, you hear that there is a woman general manager in baseball? She said, yeah, I heard, I heard that. And she knew her name. And I said, and that just goes to show you that there's nothing that you can't do. You can do anything you want here. That it's all available and all possible. And when we look at it, we don't know how far away that is before there's a female general manager. We do hope that it doesn't become the story. But are there people that you think, this is going to be a tough question, are there certain individuals who you think would be ideally suited for roles like that, Amy, that you could identify? I will think about that and give you an answer if I have one. But before I do, I want to say that when you were talking just now yeah. about the conversation you had with your 12-year-old daughter, I immediately became covered head to toe, covered in goosebumps, because the value and the power and the importance of what you are sharing with your daughter, I know on a firsthand basis, because those were things my dad conveyed to me when I was your daughter's age. Um, and, and at other times of life as well. But, you know, I will say of you, the hashtag girl dad just resonated with me because the value of what you are doing for your daughter is tremendous. And she's a lucky girl. And I also am smiling at the thought of you being a dad to a teenage daughter. So yeah. good luck with that, Adam. Well, I, I'm the uh, lucky guy. I'm the lucky guy usually, but I will say it is not, it is not easy. And I feel bad for her because she's home for school every day, like so many other children today. And it is a hard time to be a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old. It's a hard time to be a child of any kind, right? In this new environment, in this world that we live in, it's very, very difficult. And yeah, she's around. We, I mean, that, that's the upside to all this. I mean, I, I never get to leave my house really. And, and I'm around my family all the time, all the time. You are, of course, right about how difficult this particular time is on, on all children. But I will tell you, that whole 12-year-old, 11, 12, man, maybe more like 12, 13, 14, those are tough years for little girls, irrespective of a virus. And I will also tell you that when I was your daughter's age, if I were my parents, I would have sent me away to boarding school. So I do wish you luck. 
Um, I, you know, to answer your question, no particular names come to mind, but it is nice to see what some people around the league are doing. Bruce Arians comes to mind. Uh, the 49ers come to mind in terms of providing opportunities to women. Um, and, you know, that should no longer be a story any more than it should be a story when people are provided opportunities, notwithstanding any of those individualities I mentioned. But those are areas, which those are teams which are doing what they can to to create those pathways. Well, what will it take to break down that barrier if there is if there even is such a barrier? I don't believe the barrier exists with all teams. So again, I'll use the 49ers as an example. I don't believe there's a barrier there. Uh, what I think it will take is someone proving themselves in that moment. And by the way, you should have to prove yourself notwithstanding your gender or your race or your age or your seniority, uh, everybody should have to prove themselves on a job. Of course, the playing field on which to do so should be even and level. But, you know, do I think there are teams where there may be um, barriers? Sure. But do I think there are teams where there are no barriers? I do think that. And the 49ers are a good example. You bring up the 49ers, their chief administrative officer, general counsel is a woman right. by the name of Hannah Gordon, who's a star, rock star, right? Well, would you like to know where Hannah began her NFL career? Are you going to tell that me under Amy Trask? An intern for the then Oakland Raiders. Hannah was an intern with the Raiders. She shined like a star. She went on to craft herself a tremendous career, uh, ultimately with the 49ers now, but before that in many other locations, uh, including the league office. She's tremendous. Are there any other women that you've given a start to in this particular sport? I'm sure there are others you've shepherded along during this process. But again, Hannah Gordon is a rock star. You helped start her out. Anybody else here that we're missing? I can't think of anyone currently in the league that began as an intern with the Raiders as Hannah did. I will tell you there's another rock star in my view in the league, although she didn't have any association. Well, you know, I did sit across the table from her at league meetings and steal her candy. Oh, I didn't steal it. She shared her candy. Hmm. Um, but no, no background with the Raiders as Hannah had, but someone I consider a rock star is Jeannie Bonk with the uh, Los Angeles Chargers. I don't know her. What do I need to know um, about I, what, Yeah, what do I need to know about her? That doesn't surprise me because Jeannie goes about her business quietly, confidently, does a tremendous job. But um, I would say under the radar screen for the most part, and I believe that's by design, she is the senior most person at the Chargers who is not part of the Spanos family, and she does a magnificent job. Well, could Hannah Gordon be general manager of the 49ers? Well, I want to answer that in two ways. I'm not suggesting there need be a change at general manager. And what I'm about to say is not in any way an indictment uh, of the general manager that's in place now. I think highly of him. But, you know, let's say he decided to walk away and, and go live on an exotic island somewhere and just sit under a palm tree. Um, then, yes, I do think she's qualified. So, again, do I think she's qualified? Yes. Am I suggesting I don't, I don't want to create an uproar uh, by anyone thinking I'm no, suggesting no. that there need be a change in general. No, no, no. Wait, listen, I'm a, yeah, I'm a John Lynch fan too. Like I love John. He's, 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 there are not people who are any nicer than John. And we're not trying to throw John Lynch or uh, assert his power or anything like that. All I'm just saying is, is Hannah Gordon qualified to be the general manager of the four or any team, any team, Amy? 
Uh, the answer is it depends on how you define the role of general manager, because each organization defines that very differently. Uh, I don't know about Hannah's talent evaluation skills. She may be skilled in that regard. She may not. I don't know that. But in an organization where the general manager is defined as one who builds a football staff, empowers the football staff, empowers people to go find talent, but oversees all of the football general managerial issues, if you will, such as salary cap and contracts and the economics of football and hiring the right people and knowing how to hire a coach and knowing how to hire scouts. I do believe she could do that. Do I know if she is qualified to scout players? No, I don't. Well, again, I think that's what some people don't always realize also, right? A general manager does a lot of different things. It's not just player evaluation and studying X's and O's. And it's also true for a head coach, too, by the way. There are so many tasks and chores that fall under the umbrella of specifically a general manager. They have nothing to do with football, nothing to do with football. It's negotiating. It's managing the office. It's making sure that all voices are heard, that smart ones rise to the top. Right. There's so much that goes into that, not just studying film. And it used to be back in the day, I think the way we thought of general managers was guy would hit the road, study prospects, make the decisions about who to draft. And the job today is so much more layered and nuanced and complex than what it was back in the day, which is why there will be a woman general manager. And hopefully it's sooner rather than later. Well, you are absolutely positively and of course, right in your definition of the general manager's responsibilities and how the job has evolved. The only thing I will add to that is each team defines the role differently. So I agree with everything you said, tremendous observations, and every single team tailors it a bit differently. Amy, how did you get from being a CEO for the Raiders, the Princess of Darkness, as referred to by the Raiders fans once again, to going into the media, to being an author, to writing a book entitled You Negotiate Like a Girl, to being on CBS, to doing all the work that you do for them on the CBS Sports Network and the other pregame show. How did you do that? Well, I love that you dropped in Princess of Darkness again. Really love that you did that because I will forever, ever cherish. I, I think it is the best nickname ever, and I will forever cherish it. It was, as you know, not intended as a compliment when it was bestowed on me, but I accepted it as one. Raider fans accepted it as one. We embraced it together, and I shall forever cherish it. The short answer to your question is that um, I had to overcome my greatest fear to do what I'm doing now with CBS. And my greatest fear has always and forever been being on camera. Adam, I imagine there were times you saw me either on a sideline before a game or walking out of a team owners meeting at a league meeting. Um, and I would see that there was a television camera and I would run so fast that people joked Al would sign me to play corner. I ran so fast. He likes speed. Um, he my, likes speed, Amy. He likes speed. <laughs> right. Um, my, my decision to leave the Raiders was the hardest decision I've ever made. And when I say that, I recognize how fortunate I am that that is the hardest decision I ever made. But it was the right decision uh, for me. I shared with my husband as I was going back and forth, should I stay, should I go, should I stay, should I go, that I wouldn't even be able to think about what I wanted to do next 
until I made that decision. So the morning after I um, gave notice that I was leaving, I woke up and looked at my husband and I said, and this is a quote, I'm a blight on humanity. I have nothing to do. And we laughed about that. And shortly thereafter, I was given the tremendous opportunity to join CBS Sports. And my immediate reaction was, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going on camera. No, that's never happening. But um, a story I will not bore you with, I ultimately decided to do it. And I'm thrilled that I did. The, um, the team at CBS Sports is so magnificent in terms of all they do to give me the courage and the confidence to go on camera. And I'm just having a lot of fun. Where'd that come from? How did you get that confidence and courage? Like, it's not a simple thing. You obviously have developed it. What was the key to that? Well, um, you know, you're right. It's not a simple thing. And I'm not there yet. It's a work in progress. Uh, I get scared every week, but I, I do it. And then I get a little more courage every <laughs> week. And, you know, the, the way it happened to be is, um, when I was sharing with a group of people that I wasn't going to go with CBS because I, I was too scared to be on camera, someone I know said to me in a very, very, very quiet voice, three words, let it go. And she was talking about my fear, just let it go. She was talking about my insecurity, let it go. And her words resonated with me. And so this is a work in progress for me. Uh, you know, I am learning to work through my insecurity of being on camera and through my fear. And, you know, if there's something that any kids can pick up for this, and I don't mean just girls, girls, boys, or frankly, it doesn't have to be kids, is sometimes when you work through a fear or work through an insecurity, it's a lot of fun. I just was talking to a high school class and they were asking for advice about going into whatever career they're going to explore. And I went back to the Malcolm Gladwell book, The Outliers, where he talks about doing something for 10,000 hours, that you have to experience something for 10,000 hours before you become incredibly proficient at it. And so the more you're on camera, the easier it becomes over time. And I was at NFL Network for five years. And I've been at ESPN now for, I think it's 11 years, 11 plus years. And again, there were times initially when you start out where they're coming to you. I remember doing sidelines with John Madden and Al Michaels. I was fortunate enough to fill in for Andrea Kramer a couple of different times for preseason games in the summer. And they came to me, Amy, and I'm just telling you, I could feel the blood coursing from my toes to my brain that I couldn't believe the great Al Michaels was throwing to me on the sideline or even Brian Gumbel with NFL Network. I have the same kind of respect for him. Like, are you kidding me? And you could just feel the nerves in your body. And over time, eventually that goes away. And, and I will say, it's great when it comes back. Like when there's something big that you care about, a big breaking story or something happens, and you feel that surge of adrenaline. Oof. I will be, um, I have two reactions to that. And um with one of them, I will be very, very, very direct about my own insecurity. And again, if that lets someone know it's okay to acknowledge an insecurity and, and work to overcome it, well, that's terrific. But first, I want to say this. You talk about life come full circle. You just described your reaction when Al Michaels threw to you. Yeah. Think of how many people now have that same reaction about you when they get to work with you. In other words, whoever is starting out their career, 
and get that moment of talking with Adam Schefter on television. Oh, you know, I, I, they're having the same reaction I've to you never, that you had without Michael. I, I've never, ever, ever thought of it that way. I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's a fair point I'm making. And what's that great saying from, there's a great saying, I think it's Charlie Munger who said, you know, I'm sure you'll agree with me because you're smart and I'm right. So there you go. I think you'll agree with me because you're smart and I'm right that kids today, young people today, maybe not even young, but starting out in the business will have the same reaction interacting with you that you had interacting with Al. The other point, and I'll be very, very direct. I won't beat around the bush. My fear of being on camera wasn't of not knowing when to talk or where to look, although believe me, I have trouble with that a lot. It's that my greatest insecurity my whole life has been my physical appearance. We all have insecurities about something. There's things we do that we feel good about, but there's, maybe I shouldn't say everybody, there may be that person that I know that isn't insecure about anything, although I can't think of anyone. My insecurity has always been my physical appearance. So if you go back and look in, if you go back and look in home movies for my family, Google it kids, we had these little things called movies and they weren't on your phone. going back to the time I was a little, little, little girl, I'm not in any of them. Cause every time that movie would start, I'd run the opposite direction. Wow. Um, so this for me is overcoming my biggest insecurity. But you know what? It's amazing to me that you would think of yourself like that. Like, I don't, I don't think of you like that, Amy. And I don't know that other people do well, just like, I don't think of myself as someone being nervous talking to me. Like you're opening my eyes in ways that I had not viewed the world before. Well, there we go. We're having it. We're, ha- we're having one of those conversations where we both learn things. I love conversations like this. See, and, and, and so then it really, it ties together all things because we should have, I, again, you're telling me that people will be feeling that way talking to me. I'm telling you that people wouldn't look at you the way that you're thinking. And we should have a general manager as a female in football. We got everyone thinking differently about all these ideas now. And look how you just tied that up in a bow. It's, it, uh, who would have ever thought that the Princess of Darkness and the false rumor monger would come together <laughs> to solve all the problems of the world? Unbelievable. Adam, I do want to restate one thing I said at the beginning, because I hope you use it. And I was so nervous when we started talking, or, or to use my expression, I was so flibberty jibberty, I did not state it well. But I will state it again. You inviting me to join you on this podcast is... A tremendous, it's, it's a tremendous honor for me. And I really did this morning have that feeling of, wow, I get to eat lunch at the table with the cool kids. I got invited to the cool kids table, sort of a flashback to junior yeah. high when, by the way, I was never invited to eat at the cool kids table. So thank you for this feeling. Well, I don't think my table's very cool at all, but I hope it certainly lived up to your expectations. And I will say this, I I'd like to get you back in the podcast again. It was fantastic to speak with you. Really enjoyed it. Again, Amy Trask, analyst for CBS Sports and the CBS Sports Network, and is on the other pregames. Amy, you're a media star. You are a rock star. And I thank you very much for your time today at the what you think is the cool lunch table. Well, thanks for having me at the cool lunch table. I mean that quite sincerely, and the honor is mine. And an issue of full transparency. We had that conversation with the great Amy Trask on Monday about midday. 
And as I thought about our conversation and reflected upon what she said, it struck me. What would prevent her from becoming the first women general manager? And I didn't ask her how she would feel about that. So I shot her a direct message on Twitter and I said, forgive me for not asking this, but I'm curious and I would be remiss in not asking. What would be your thoughts on becoming the first woman general manager? Would that interest you? And basically, in a nutshell, she seemed to indicate that she's quite happy being an analyst for CBS, doing what she's doing. And most of all, know she lives out in California. And I think that as she referred in the message, she said if they put an NFL team in Oahu or Baja or Malibu, yes, she would be very interested in becoming an NFL general manager. But I think she's very happy living where she does for the time being. All right, now on to our next guest, who's got a big assignment this week, going up against the Drew breezeless New Orleans Saints, the Falcons head coach, Raheem Morris. Hello, Raheem. How are we? Man, I could be doing better. How about yourself? You are doing all right. Listen, you, you take over. The team is 0-5. You're 3-1 and with you as the head coach. I would say you are doing pretty well, right? Yeah, you know, I can't complain. You know, you got to be in the moment. Uh, Adam, and we're certainly going to assume the responsibility and do what we need to do to find a way to win. Raheem, I want to ask you, you take over as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers head coach, Back in 2009, you're 32 years old. 12 years later, you're 44. You take over as the interim head coach of the Atlanta Falcons. What is the difference between 32-year-old Raheem Morris and 44-year-old Raheem Morris? You know, 32-year-old Raheem Morris, and I don't want to talk in third person, but yeah. it was a great opportunity. Um, it was something out there that you look forward to, you were, you were able to do, you have to do it at a young age, you have to go with a lot of energy, um, you're thrown into a situation that you probably just wasn't all the way ready for, you know, and then you get fired from that spot, and every day after that's been a great learning experience. You get a chance to work with guys like Mike Shanahan, you get a chance to work with Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay on that same staff, and all the guys that was able to work with there, work with Jim Haslett, coming from that Pittsburgh system, bringing that defense and that philosophy and that demeanor and all the things that you know. You accompany that with all the stuff you already learned from the Monty Kiffin, the cover two, and you're able to just merge all defensive things. Then you move on, and you're able to go and join your friend Dan Quinn um, in Atlanta, and he's able to bring some of the Seattle background and some of the philosophy from there, from Pete Carroll, some of those great, co- those great coaches um, that he had been around. And you're able to get here and get with the same people like Kyle Shanahan and work with him actually on that same side of the ball and move the offense and both coach on defense and be an assistant head coach and be able to support Dan Quinn at the highest level and be able to give him all the advice in the world that you possibly could that you went through when you were 32. And now all of a sudden you're 44 and you got the opportunity to take over for your good friend and you just want to do the greatest job you can possibly do for him, for the city, for the team, for your fan base, for your family, for everything that you can possibly represent. Have you had much contact with Dan Quinn since you took over? I will always have contact with Dan Quinn. You're talking about one of the greatest men in my life, talking about one of the people that is uh, a big-time mentor for me, um, a person I can always communicate with and tell the truth to and know I'll get the truth back. Um, and when you have those kind of people, when you find those kind of people, you don't lose sight, you don't lose touch, and you continue those communications throughout your whole process. Hmm. What's the greatest thing that you'd say you learned from Dan Quinn right here? You know, Dan Quinn was a constant motivator. He was a constant guy that was always looking to self-develop and both develop his coaching staff and develop everybody around him. He wanted everybody to grow at the highest level and be able to move forward 
um, to take steps forward to being whatever they wanted to be, whatever it was. If you wanted to be the best receiver coach, he was going to find a way to help you be the best receiver coach. If you want to be a better husband, he was going to find a way to help you be a better husband. If you want to be a better head coach and find a way to become a head coach, he was going to do everything in his power to help you become a head coach. And it was no different at the end for him here than it is right now with me taking over for him and how he supported me and how he helped me guide along to get ready for this moment now. You know, I'm thinking about 32-year-old Raheem Morris, and I remember there are teams that reach out to you, to me, at times, and they say, what, what do you think of this guy? And I say, boy, he's very well respected. Players love him. They just don't know at the age of 32 if he's ready quite yet. And Tampa gave you that chance at that time. Looking back at it now, do you think it might have been better to wait, get a little bit more seasoning before you came a head coach, or the opportunity came along and you felt like you're still happy that it happened then? I don't know if you can ever take away from that experience of being a Tampa Bay head coach. Uh, one of the greatest moments of my life, working with really great people in the Glazers. I'm working for a really good organization, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, having the opportunity to take that team and go 10-6, and six, uh, 2010 magical year, not make the playoffs, get bumped out by the Green Bay Packers, who actually went on to win the Super Bowl. But um, that year, the learning experience you got for the year of success, and including the years you had from, from, from some of your faults, because you got to go through some adversity in life going through those adversity moments and those, those situations has definitely made me stronger for the process of what we're going through right now. And the only way you go through those, those situations is if you put yourself in situations. So you would never turn down the opportunity to be in a situation, no matter what the age, no matter what the time, no matter how. How much would it mean to you to become a head coach again, Raheem? Let me rephrase <laughs> that. How much would it mean to you to have the interim title removed? For me, Adam, it's just the mentality. You know, it was the mentality before it was ever reality. Yeah. I'm the head coach of the Atlanta Falcons right now in my head, and, and I'm not going to treat it any other way. I'm not looking at it as a job interview, although everybody may take it that way. I'm looking as I'm trying to win a championship. If you're not going out every single day, putting every foot forward to win a championship, then you're not doing it the right way, in my opinion. And my job right now is find a way to go 1-0 every single week as much as I can for this team, for this organization, for this ownership, for everybody involved. Now, this week, to get to 1-0 – you have to beat the Drew Breesless New Orleans Saints. How does it work for you at a time like this to prepare for a team that at the time we're recording this has not said who its starting quarterback will be? Well, you got to prepare for Sean, and you know what he's capable of doing. He's been able to do it with a bunch of different players um, for a long amount of time. Um, he's, he's amazing at putting people in great roles to go out there and perform what they got to do. You got Jameis Winston, you got Taysom Hill. They both got great, different, two different skill sets. They both can go out there and two different things, and he'll have those guys prepared to go and ready to roll. And he's going to try to find a way to go one and no. So we got to go out there and try to find a way to force our will on our opponent, being the Saints, and go out there and get a win this week. You play the Saints two times in the next three weeks. Do you have a guess for me as to the quarterback you think you'll be facing on Sunday? <laughs> I'm going to be facing the quarterback that Sean Payton prepares for the situation. I know that. I'm going to be in the moment. I'm going to figure out who he throws out there on the field, and we're going to be ready. You know, we got a really good staff that's in there preparing right now. Can't wait to go join them. Um, we're going to prepare for these guys like, like, like we're going to try to go one and no. And that's the mentality for us. You know, we know he's going to put a quarterback there. They're going to be very capable. They're going to have everything squared away. We know they're going to be sharp. They're going to be detailed, and they're going to play with a certain mentality of their head coach. I brought up that that head coaching question before, right? So here's my question. When teams start interviewing candidates and they get to interview you again, assuming that you haven't been hired full-time in Atlanta, if a team asked what would Raheem Morris 
bring to my team as the head coach, what would the answer to that be, Randy? You know, I want to bring a winning culture. I want to bring a winning mentality. I want to bring who I am. You know, the only way you go out there and be your best self is you can go out there and be yourself. Uh, if I could be my best self every single day, that's what I present for any single team um, that I'm able to go out and coach for and play for and do whatever I need to do for. Hey, Raheem, I'll let you get back and join your colleagues, your assistant coaches. I appreciate the time today. We'll be watching on Sunday. And thank you very much. Hey, thanks, Adam. And so there is the former head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a man who held that position from 2009 to 2011, a man who is now the interim head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, a man who I would think would get some interviews in the head coaching cycle this offseason, Raheem Morris. And you can see why he is a electric, dynamic personality who will continue to draw interest. I also should mention that just last week, I had the chance to make my first trip to Bristol, Connecticut since the first week of March when this pandemic began. Now, we've not done any NFL shows from Bristol, Connecticut, but they wanted to shoot a 30-minute special about Peyton's Places, season two, which debuts on ESPN November 29th, in which Peyton will be interviewing a whole bunch of Hall of Famers, as well as David Letterman and other guests. And they had me come to Bristol to host a preview special that's going to air at 7 p.m. Eastern on November 24th on ESPN2. And during that special, I had the chance to talk to Peyton Manning and Lynn Swan, the Hall of Famer who Peyton Manning did one of his episodes on. And it was great to talk to Lynn Swan because growing up, one of the great sports trivia questions that I've ever been asked was this. There are two MVPs who went to the same college at the same time. They both went on to win respective MVP awards in their respective sports. One's first name is the other's last name. It's a great question. Two players, same college, same time, played sports, went to the pros, each won an MVP award. One's first name is the other's last One's first name is the other's last name. Well, the answer is Lynn Swan, who won a Super Bowl MVP award, and Fred Lynn, the baseball player, who won a baseball MVP award. They were at USC together. And I've asked that question to so many people over the years. And I said to Lynn Swan at the end of our interview, I said, hey, I got to ask you something. I've always used your name as an answer to a trivia question. And he cut me off. He goes, Fred Lynn. I said, oh, you know the question. And he laughed. He said, yes. He's been asked it many times over the years. Fred Lynn was his good friend. And what I didn't know was that Fred Lynn also played football and was excellent at it, but chose to go into baseball where he was a standout for the Boston Red Sox, along with Jim Rice. When I worked for the Yankees, those are two guys that always tormented the New York Yankees. But I was taken aback that Lynn Swan even jumped the question, knew the answer before I could even ask it. But anyway, he will be featured on that special. Peyton's Place is a preview show that airs on ESPN2, November 24th at 7 p.m. Set your DVRs and look for that Peyton's Places Season 2 on ESPN Plus coming up as well. All right, let's go on to Week 11 and our next guest. We are on to Week 11, and we are on to my friend, my colleague, the ESPN statistician, analytics guru, Evan Kaplan. Evan, how are we today? 
Doing well, Adam. How are you? We're getting ready for Thursday night. We've got a great matchup. We've got the Seattle Seahawks versus the Arizona Cardinals. We've got Russell Wilson versus Kyler Murray, round two. And I'll leave it to you to take it from there, Evan. The, the first game between these two was certainly one of the best we've seen all year. And the, and the Cardinals' last three games have been out of this world, right? The, the game against the Seahawks in overtime in week seven, uh, they had a bye in week eight. They played the Dolphins in another great game with Tua in week nine. And then we know what happened week 10 with, with DeAndre Hopkins and certainly the play of the year against the Bills. And when we, we see these teams match up on Thursday, Russell Wilson and the Seahawks are kind of have to get back on track after the last four weeks. And, and that might be a good spot for him on Thursday night where he's eight and one in his career. He's won his last eight Thursday night starts after losing his first in 2012, 18 touchdown passes, four interceptions in those games. They're at home. They're back in Seattle. I would expect a big performance from Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. But as we kind of look, look deeper into these two quarterbacks in this season, let me know if you agree with me here. The first time these two teams met, in week seven, I think all the talk was Russell Wilson MVP, yeah. deservedly so, and he's still right near the top of the list. But now, as we enter the matchup in week 11, I think Kyler Murray is right in the conversation for the NFL MVP this year. I think right now Kyler Murray has passed Russell Wilson mm. for whatever that's worth at week 10. Now, right. again, we've got six, seven decisive weeks that will tell a lot. Mm-hmm. In this matchup, but I think going into this matchup Thursday night, right now, Kyler Murray has a edge over Russell Wilson for the MVP. If you look at Kyler Murray and his numbers last year compared to Lamar Jackson, who did yeah. win the MVP, they're better than mm-hmm. Lamar Jackson. They are. And, and Russell Wilson, as great as he has been the last three weeks, has led the NFL in turnovers. Yeah, a lot of turnovers, absolutely, for Wilson. And and Kyler Murray, it seems like every game it's two to three touchdown passes and one or two rushing touchdowns. I mean, he's got 27 total touchdowns when you combine passing and rushing, 17 passing, 10 rushing, which is 10 rushing touchdowns uh, through week 10, which is out of this world for a quarterback. Uh, it's going to be really interesting down the stretch as we get towards Thanksgiving and playoff races. I think the MVP race – Unlike last year, where Lamar Jackson ran away with it, like you mentioned, it's going to be a fun race this year. Kyler Murray, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, four guys, and maybe throw in a couple others as we get down the stretch, but four quarterbacks who legitimate claims with their numbers and how their teams are playing. Yep, I I agree with that. It should be a great matchup. All right, a former MVP, you mentioned Patrick Mahomes, travels to Las Vegas to face the Raiders. And earlier this season, the Raiders beat the Chiefs. But Patrick Mahomes has a little bit of a history after losses. Yeah, he does. And this is this is interesting. And, and one of my colleagues, along with me, Vince Massey, kind of dug this up and, and really interesting numbers. So three previous instances where Patrick Mahomes lost to a team and then played them again later that season when you include the playoffs. So let's go to the first one. 2018 AFC Championship against the Patriots. Yes, the Chiefs lost in overtime. Mahomes. Three touchdown passes, 295 yards. Last season's divisional round against the Texans. Remember, Houston beat Kansas City earlier in the season. All Mahomes did was throw for five touchdowns and 321 yards. And then last season's AFC Championship, again, they lost to the Titans earlier last season, played them in the championship, three touchdown passes, that amazing rushing touchdown down the left sideline, and 294 yards and a win. So you total all that up, 11 touchdown passes, 
no interceptions, 303 passing yards per game, and a QBR of 92. You don't beat Pat if you beat Patrick Mahomes twice in a season like the Patriots did back in 2018. You're gonna have to earn it, and what? and those numbers just kind of speak for themselves. And then this one, see if you find this interesting, Adam. This will be the third straight year that the Chiefs play the Raiders following Kansas City's bye. How about that? How about that bad luck for the Raiders? And, and by yep. the way, if you look at Andy Reid's record after the bye, amazing. You know, it's like fourteen and one, I think. Something yeah, eight, like that. Eight, eighteen and three in the regular season. When you just look at off the regular season by, it's unreal. So they've scored forty points in each of those previous two games against the Raiders, coming off their by. Kind of a, a little bad luck there, or whatever you want to call it, for John Gruden and the Raiders. But a lot of intrigue to this one. Uh, and then you go back to the first match of it, and the Raiders defended Mahomes better than anyone has uh, almost in his career. You know, he had a career low completion percentage in that game. The Raiders got pressure. I think the key to, to beating Mahomes and the Chiefs, you get pressure without blitzing. That's what the Raiders did in week five. It, it's going to be a fun game Sunday night in Las Vegas. Oh, that's a Sunday night game too this week? It is. It is. I did not know that, but I am yeah, glad to. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. That's interesting. And then we wrap up week 11 with what I think may just be our best remaining Monday night matchup, Tom Brady. Versus the Los Angeles Rams. What do we make of that game, Evan? Yeah, Brady's got a long history against the Rams, going back to his first season as a starter in 2001. So, so he lost his first career game ever starting against uh, the Rams franchise, and then he's won five straight, five and one, and and within those five included two of the most memorable performances of his career: Super Bowl 36, the first Super Bowl he won uh, in the Superdome, Patriots beating the Rams 20 to 17, in an absolute classic. Uh, huge uh, upset for the Patriots. And then his most recent Super Bowl, Super Bowl 53, also against Los Angeles a couple years ago, game in Atlanta. That was his sixth Super Bowl. So kind of interesting how he bookended those Super Bowls. And now as we, you know, we always like to put the historical perspective around it and then dig into the matchup. Hmm. And this is one where it's Aaron Donald and that Rams defense, which quietly the Rams are allowing the second fewest points per game in the NFL. That defense has been, among the best in the league this year. You've got a really good pass rush with Donald. Leonard Floyd is having a huge season. And then on the back end, Jalen Ramsey has been one of the best cornerbacks in coverage all year. Aaron Donald, interestingly enough, two career games against the against Tom Brady. Donald's got the most sacks in the NFL since his rookie season. Well, in two career games against Brady, including that Super Bowl matchup, he's never gotten them for a sack. So that's kind of a little, little subplot as we head towards Monday night. And these are two of the two of the top teams in the NFC, I think. I mean, the, the Buccaneers have been a little up and down. We saw their performance against the Saints, but with everything going on with New Orleans quarterback situation, I think I think the winner of this game Monday night, we're gonna feel really good about their chances of going deep in the NFC playoffs. Well, it's funny, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Seahawks and the Cardinals, and the Rams are the team that people are forgetting about in the mm-hmm. NFC West. For whatever reason, they just have not gotten as much attention, maybe because Jared Goff is not as uh, electric as yeah, I mean, Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray. I totally agree. And I think in this age of offense, when when you watch a game like Bill's Cardinals and you see Murray and Josh Allen going back and forth, and, and we talked about the, the Murray-Wilson matchup earlier this season, the Rams are built on defense, really. I mean, I mean, their, their defense is kind of what's carrying them. The offense – has some explosive plays. They use a ton of play action with Goff and, and what's been a really good running game. But I think whenever you've got a team that's kind of more skewed towards defense, 
in this age of offense and scoring in the NFL, it's easy to forget about them. Evan, it should be a great matchup Monday night. We'll be on for Monday Night Countdown, 6 Eastern ESPN. I will see you at the New York studio. And until then, enjoy week 11. Sounds good, Adam. You too. So there's my friend, my colleague, the great Evan Kaplan, doing what he does, providing insight and information and analysis into the upcoming weekend's matchups. And I also want to point out that we are a week away from Thanksgiving. It's upon us. It's here. And that might be my favorite holiday. Now, I love I love Memorial Day because that means we're past the NFL draft, we're in nice weather, summer's coming. Memorial Day is always great. But there's something about Thanksgiving with family, food, football, the three Fs, that to me makes it stand out above the rest. And so as we get ready for Thanksgiving next week, I just want to remind everybody about the football schedule we'll get on Thanksgiving Day. Early game, Houston at Detroit. Meh, not great, not great, but it's still football on Thanksgiving. Next game, Washington at Dallas. Interesting. I mean, nobody is running away with that NFC East. That's the division that nobody wants to win other than maybe the New York Giants. And then the nightcap that game, which makes up for the first two matchups, Baltimore at Pittsburgh. I'm down with that. That. That goes along with the pumpkin pie that we'll be having for dessert on NBC at 8.20 that night. Baltimore at Pittsburgh. Look forward to that game. Amazing that Thanksgiving is already here. Coming up on us quick. Feels like one repeat of one day after another. But that's the life we're all living right now. I want to thank my guests this week, the great Amy Trask. How fun was that? Talking to a woman who I used to cover as a professional and now watch as she does great work for CBS. I want to thank the Interim head coach, maybe soon to be head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, Raheem Morris. And I want to thank my colleague and friend, Evan Kaplan, as well as my great producer, Christina Buswell, who puts up with me and puts together this podcast each week. I say that every week, but it's true. Not easy to put up with me and not easy to put together this podcast. And thank you to all the listeners for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us again next week as we will be joined by the former general manager of the Houston Texans, Rick Smith, who has an incredible story to tell in the week of Thanksgiving. Until then, have a great week, be well, and stay safe.